Grant, O Lord, that through the written word and through the spoken word, we may behold the living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. The New Testament uh, scholar Paula Gooder has produced another novel um, based on New Testament characters. Her first one was on the deacon Phoebe, um, who was commended in the epistle to the Romans, who came from Corinth. This one is on the woman Lydia, the seller of purple from Philippi. And it's an imaginative reconstruction of life in those times, but informed by deep biblical knowledge and knowledge of New Testament times. So it actually is a fascinating introduction to what life would have been like in that Roman colony of Philippi um, in those times. And there were problems in the Philippian church. There were problems because those who were Jewish believers who had been converted uh, but had been loyal Jews wished to continue to keep as many of the, or all of the, the, the laws and the practices that they had followed as Jews before. But the Gentile believers, those from other backgrounds, actually had heard from St. Paul and they didn't actually follow these things. And this was a course of tension between the two communities. And there's a certain amount of working that out in Paula's novel, Lydia, uh, well worth reading. So tension within the church, if you like, has been there from the early days. One group says, we believe this and we should do this. The other group says, no, we don't believe this, actually, and, we're not going to, and we don't do this. How do you actually hold the two together? This week, the General Synod of the Church of England will be discussing same-sex marriage and prayers, appropriate prayers or not um, in their context. There is no proposal to have a, a marriage service in church for those of the same sex, but there is a proposal um, to bless the people involved. You might think this is a bit of um, careful splitting of hairs, that might be the case, but it's, um, I think, to a large extent, been framed in that way so as to try to keep the peace between those who would insist that holy matrimony can only possibly between, be between a man and a woman. That is actually what is in the Book of Common Prayer. That is actually what the church has always believed. And those who say, actually, that's not what the church has always believed. You're, you're only dealing with what was written down at various points in history. Things were a lot more fluid. And if you go back to actually what is in the, in the Bible, it's nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. It's actually what we would call a creation ordinance, that from the earliest days, God said it is not good that man should be alone. And then you get the creation of Eve out of Adam, and then the institution um, of a partnership between the two. But the initial, you know, uh, if you like, observation and the fundamental, if you like, command of God is it's not good that man should be alone. And so you have two parties, actually, and it is impossible to satisfy both at once. There are those who are deeply disappointed that the bishops in the Church of England 
haven't said, no, we need to recognise that people of the same sex can get married and we need to provide a, a service for them. But to have done that would have outraged and deeply offended those who would say holy matrimony is, a, is something which is part of Christian doctrine. Now, we're Anglicans, we're not Roman Catholics. If you're a Roman Catholic, you'd say it was a sacrament and therefore ordained by God. The Protestant churches and the Lutheran churches have never said that marriage is a sacrament. We only believe in two sacraments, the sacrament of the Eucharist that we're celebrating this morning and the sacrament of baptism, which we'll be celebrating at half past 12 this morning as well. And those are the two ordained by God. But how do you hold the two together? And then Jesus comes into the argument, if you like, and says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Very famous, uh, a familiar passage from the Sermon on the Mount there. But would Jesus have even brought the subject up if it wasn't a live issue? I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. There were those who were saying, this man Jesus has come to abolish it. Do not follow him. This man is dangerous. Take no notice. And there were others who were saying, actually, God is speaking through this person. He's telling us things, if you like, about the fundamentals of God. And rather than the, the, the laws and the regulations that our faith has placed around it. And this must have been a big issue for the community that Matthew wrote his gospel for. It would have been read with huge interest in Philippi, although in the time when Paula Gooder set in her book, Matthew's gospel wouldn't have been written at that point but it would have been hugely helpful for the community there. So we need to ask, why would people have thought that was a possibility? Why would people be accusing Jesus of wanting to abolish the law? Well, perhaps it's worth noting that actually there wasn't just one form of Judaism around in Jesus' time. There was the Judaism which Jesus would have grown up with in Galilee, a way, long way from the temple, which majored on the teachings of the prophets, because that was what they found and would speak to them. But there was the Judaism of Judea around Jerusalem that would have majored on the temple and the sacrifices to be offered in the temple, because they could get to the temple. And there was the Judaism of the Pharisees, which get a lot of stick usually in the New Testament, um, but were actually in, in some ways the, the progressives of the day. They loved the oral interpretation of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. They loved it because they believed that this was, these were the rules and the regulations that God had given to his people. And if you lived by these rules and regulations, then you lived in a state of blessedness and of being in tune with the will of God. And there was the Judaism of the Sadducees, the other main party, who didn't believe a word of what the Pharisees had to say. The Pharisees would interpret the first five books 
of the Old Testament and say, well, actually, what this means is, is A, B, and C, and D, E, F, and G. And so there was a whole list of various things that you were supposed to do. There were also two schools of interpretation among the rabbis at the time. And the two famous ones that actually you can read about if you look up in all sorts of places, there's the Judaism of Rabbi Hillel, who taught that a righteous Gentile could enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Judaism of Rabbi um, Shammai, who taught they couldn't, that heaven was only for the Jews. And so Jesus was already teaching in a context where there were a lot of various interpretations around. And Jesus comes in, if you like, and with his teaching, which forms a huge shockwave to them because it's entirely different. He radically reinterprets. Now, if this was just, if you like, a cat fight between uh, uh, rabbi interpreters, one and the other, you know, Shammai says this, Hillel says that, Jesus says the other, they're all right. We're used to that. We know about that in the church, about different groups having different interpretations. But it wasn't like that. And the way that Jesus really upped the ante in this is the way in which he radically reinterpreted what they'd been told. And if you go on to read in Matthew chapter 5, after that passage finishes, Jesus then gives examples of the way in which he reinterprets the law, reinterprets what's in the law of Moses, things that they had always been told. You know, and so the phrase that comes up again and again, you have heard it said, such and such, and then, but I say to you, love your neighbor, do good to your enemies. You have heard it said, but I say to you, something slightly different. Now that really does um, shock people. Because this isn't this man saying, um, well, Hillel says this, and Shammai says that, and I say the other. No, it's saying Moses says this, but I say in other words, setting himself as an authority above that of Moses. What are you going to do is the, the challenge that's laid out to Jesus' hearers. Are you going to follow the Torah or are you going to follow me? And of course, the problem is, is that for people in those days, the interpretations of the law were so minute and so binding, it was impossible to fulfill them all unless you're a professional religious person. So the ordinary people of the land who couldn't keep themselves pure, who couldn't actually fulfill everything that was there, that were probably ritually unclean most of the time because life was difficult and that was the way they had to live. So for instance, some of the, some of the rules that are written down in the interpretation of the law, the Jewish writings called the Mishnah, that a new lamp can be moved from one place to another on the Sabbath, but an old lamp can't. Hot food can be kept warm on the Sabbath if you cover it with clothes, feathers, or dried flax, but not with damp herbs or straw, because that could engender fresh heat and will thus be work on the Sabbath. An ass may go out on the Sabbath day wearing its saddlecloth if it was fixed on before the Sabbath, 
but it may not wear a bell even if the bell's been silenced because that would make the ass work. Goats could go out with a protective cloth on their udders to keep them dry, but not if it's intended to collect milk. And in modern day um, conservative Orthodox Judaism in this country, you may not turn your light switches on on the Sabbath, because that's work. So what do you do? You actually have a friendly Gentile to come in and turn the lights on for you, because that's all right. These are the rules that Jesus is actually re reacting against. So where does it leave the church? Because, you know, we've been as guilty of that as anybody else. And this debate in Synod about marriage of same-sex uh, couples or not, and exactly what you can and can't do, overlooks the fact that there is no New Testament doctrine of marriage as such. Jesus speaks out against divorce. Jesus recognizes that marriage exists, but doesn't set down rules for it. And actually, up until the Middle Ages, in this country, marriage was highly unregulated, and the church almost had little part in it. Couples would turn up at the church gate for the priest to pronounce a blessing on the marriage. And that was, that was their recognition of their marriage in the sight of the community and in the sight of God. And it may have got an entry in the church registers, or it may not. It may have some, to a certain extent, depended on whether the priest could write well enough to do it or not. But bit by bit, marriage laws changed in this country. And the real driver behind the change of marriage laws and actually having registers in the church to record marriages and things, which actually, it's interesting, only just changed in that now the register is kept by the registry office and not in the church. So for something like 300 years, churches kept the registers of marriages. And why did those marriage acts come, uh, were they enacted? Well, it wasn't, as it were, uh, to remedy sort of um, immoral behavior among the people of Britain and told them so they've got to actually turn up in church and regularize their union. No. It was to sort out inheritance issues after somebody died. It was essentially about money, the actual marriage acts. But we've now sort of codified it into, into a Christian doctrine of holy matrimony. And that's what will upset an awful lot of people if, you move, if Synod decides to move against it. It would involve changing the Book of Common Prayer. Interestingly, Parliament has said, well, if um, the church is so out of step with society, maybe we need to intervene. Well, actually, the last time Parliament intervened on this was when the church did want to change the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I'm trying to remember the date. Um, the prayer book. Uh, 1928. Thank you, Charles. Uh, and actually, in 1929, Parliament declined to approve it because it was changing the Book of Common Prayer. It's interesting, the argument is, is being reversed at the moment. So what did Jesus do? Was Jesus actually changing the law? 
Or was he actually upholding it by saying that actually I am that law of God personified in my being? If you look at, if we have the Old Testament reading that we had today, that points that out as well. Um, Is this not the fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of injustice and to do, undo the throngs of the yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? This is Isaiah radically reinterpreting the law in a different way. So in fact, the Jewish people knew perfectly well that this was in their tradition. And that what Jesus maybe is doing is saying, I'm bringing you back to a purer form of the law, that it's personified in me, that you follow me rather than the interpretations of the law. And the New Testament reading that we had that came with this was St. Paul saying that the church is led by the Spirit and has to listen to the Spirit. And in this debate that will happen next week, I'm afraid there will be heat and light as well as words of wisdom on it. But we need to pray for wisdom for a church that can listen to the Holy Spirit, can listen to discover what Christian experience has taught them. We can't really imagine having all this fuss today, which we did at the time, about whether those who've been divorced are allowed to be remarried in church. Christian experience has moved on. We have known that marriages can break and that people need to be able to move on from there. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We also need to listen to the tradition of the church. We need to listen to scripture. We need to listen to society as well. And then do what Paul was urging the Christians in Corinth to do, is see what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And just as in Philippi, the two groups had to learn to live with each other, so we will need to live with each other. But we will live with each other in greater peace and harmony if we can learn to listen to the Spirit of God in the church. Amen.